You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 34, Speaking Ladino. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Carlos Yebra Lopez of Ladino 21 and the hyperpolyglot activist about the endangered Judeo-Spanish language, also known as Ladino. In this episode, Carlos gives us all an overview of Ladino, starting from its origins and its spread throughout the diaspora. If you're only slightly familiar with Ladino or unaware of it as I was, this is a great conversation to help you understand the language and how it continues to be spoken and to thrive into the 21st century. He also helps us to understand the separation between the language and the religion, which is often associated with the language. Because Carlos is also familiar with many other languages, we also talk about what being a polyglot means to him personally and what it can mean to some in the language learning community. Other topics include cultural appropriation, his methods for language learning, lyrics and subtext of reggaeton, and we uncover why so many of us have trouble translating numbers into other languages. For more information about the Ladino language, please check out Ladino 21 and Carlos's YouTube channels, which you can find links to in the show notes. And as always, don't forget to like and subscribe, rate and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. Okay, let's chat. How are you, Carlos? Doing great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm so happy that you're here with me and we're able to have this conversation. Um, I like to start each episode with the same question, more or less the same question, and that is, what is your first language and which languages do you currently speak? Sure. So this is the thing. When you start with language learning, you, you do count languages as separate, discrete entities, and it gets to a point where if you're feeling that you're making progress, you want to add more and more. <laughs> uh, but then when you study linguistics at the same time at university, like I, like I do, you start questioning some of these categories, right? So I don't really speak uh, of languages as such out of the gate, but, uh, and some of the languages that I do speak will be described as dialects by other people. So with that caveat, I'm going to name the number of languages which I deem languages that I, that I think I speak, but just to say that this is relative, right? Okay. Not as, as clear cut as it seems. So my first language in that case will be uh, Spanish. I was raised and born in Spain to a monolingual family. So I only spoke Spanish to my sisters, my, my parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is not to say that it was the only language that I was exposed to at home because sometimes we will watch uh, TV channels and other materials in Catalan. Oh, wow. Because, okay. uh, yeah, the, time where, the town where I was born and raised is close to uh, Catalonia. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can watch some TV uh, channels like TV3 and others in Catalan. So I yeah. took advantage of that to just watch, for instance, Dragon Ball Z, <laughs> a lot in Catalan. And I still cool. remember some of the expressions in that language. So more or less in the same order as I learned them. Obviously, the first one was English. I started learning English when I was seven at school. That's mm-hmm. like the, uh, the normal path in Spain. And then French, but that was already in high school. Mm-hmm. German, but that was already at university, so the next level in college. And then I would say it was probably after German that I developed a desire to learn languages serially mm-hmm. to be a serial learner of languages mm-hmm. and um, I was studying philosophy at the university in college and then I decided to change paths and to just uh, switch from the philosophy of language to just linguistics and literature okay. yeah that was a point where and so after German I studied Serbian and then I came across Ladino or Judeo-Spanish. 
And then um, it was Portuguese, which I learned with uh, a number of Brazilian friends in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then I, I went to Duolingo and refers my Italian and <laughs> Catalan, these two. And my most recent endeavor has been with Chinese, with Mandarin, because I, I spent three months in Shanghai. Oh, in, exciting. At New York University, but based in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I decided to study Mandarin for three months before going. And once I went there, I, I was hooked on, on the language and I couldn't put it aside. So I'll be, I've been studying Mandarin ever since. That's really cool. So you, you said that you grew up near Catalonia. So you heard Catalan spoken at home or was it spoken just in your neighborhood or with your friends? Yeah, so, so as I said, not with people that I was seeing in person every day, such as my family or friends, but rather uh, media that was written or broadcasted in that language occasionally. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it will be TV channels, radio, and non-specific people. Were you able to have a conversation if you needed to or you wanted to? Mm, No, but also because Catalan was a taboo or a difficult topic. I see. For political reasons. So I wouldn't find a lot of people who were willing to speak to me in Catalan or, or to have a long conversation in that language. They will say occasionally some words in Catalan, but mm-hmm. it was more of a, as a reflection of their cultural background rather than as an expression of their desire to engage in that language. I see. So when you were in school and you said you... You did French in high school, German in college. What was that like, learning these different languages in school? What was that progression like for you? That's a very interesting question because I think that when you go to school and you're accustomed to that system, you tend to think of languages as just another subject. Mm. It's like geography or chemistry, then now it's time for German, time for French. And it wasn't until I went to college that I developed the mindset that languages underpinned every other subject or, or topic. And that, that's an excellent way of learning languages in context. Yeah. So I would say that that was the main difference for me between learning languages in high school and then after high school. When you were studying French in uh, high school, when you were studying German, before you kind of got to that critical point where you realized that there's more to just it being a subject in school, had you thought about wanting to learn more than one language then, or was it something that came about much later for you? Yeah, that, that came that came um, in college. Okay. At high school, I was just, um, I put a lot of effort into my English and my French, mm-hmm. but just as much as in any other subject. So it was just a matter of me being studious rather than conscious about the possibility of devoting my career to knowledge. So that came, came later. Mm-hmm. And you correct me if I'm wrong, but you're what's considered a hyper polyglot. To some extent, yes. To some extent. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, right. So, so the idea of a hyper polyglot is someone who speaks many languages, mm-hmm. right? The problem is where do you draw the line? So some people say, okay, you're a hyper polyglot if you speak six or more languages. Others say, well, if you speak 10 or more languages, and then again, we go back to this problem of what really counts as language right. or dialect, right? Is Judeo Spanish a dialect of Spanish? So in your mind, it's just one language, but in mine, it's two languages. And do Serbo Croatian, Serbian yeah. and Croatian are different languages or not? So, yeah. And so, yeah, according to the most ambitious classification, which, which will be 12 languages, mm-hmm. then no, I'm still not a hyper But if you, if by hyperpolygon you mean six or ten languages, then yes. Okay, so mm-hmm. let's say, let's say ten languages. Mm-hmm. What does that label mean to you? Does it have a meaning to you? Is it important to yeah. you um, yeah, yeah, yeah. to be classified as such, or, or you know, personally, how do you view that classification? Classification. Yeah, I think that 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 question is very relevant because it intersects with my theoretical concern in terms of. Uh, my career. So, yeah, the label hyperpolyglot is ambiguous and is problematic. So, it really speaks to that underlying premise of quantifying languages as discrete entities and then a proliferation of languages in the Marxist sense, 
and you place them in the neoliberal market and you transform language into capital, mm. right? So mm-hmm. that's why one of the most immediate questions is always, how, how many languages do you speak, right? Far from an innocent question, it's, it's a symptom of, of something broader, which is a, a neoliberal uh, um, market that tries to derive capital from languages. So am I part of that neoliberal market? I think to some extent, yes. But, but insofar as I'm also a linguist, and a critical linguist, I would say, I have the moral obligation of prefacing any use of the label hyperpolyglot with this kind of explanation, right? So, mm-hmm. yes, I use it to my advantage, definitely. I exploit that label in the, in the capitalist sense. But I, I'm also aware of where it comes from and where it can uh, go astray. I think it's an interesting thing to want to be a part of. And for me, I'm not a linguist. Um, I've studied languages, but I haven't studied them, you know, to to the extent that you have. Um, And and I think it's interesting because for me, when, when I'm learning a language or when I'm thinking about another language, the culture is such a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder for someone who, let's say they are really leaning on this, I speak 10 languages completely fluently, how much of the culture can a person really absorb um, across that, that span of 10 or 12 languages? And I always wonder, like, how genuine is it? How, how genuine do people, is it more about the label? Is it more about actually being able to um, understand the cultural nuance of so many different uh, cultures across, across the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is a, a very uh, interesting question. So the question of how genuine is it to learn so many languages? I think there's an important debate in the polyglot community, uh, which is uh, to what extent does that mean incurring to cultural appropriation, for instance? Right. right. And to me, you incur cultural appropriation whenever you engage with a cultural practice without being personally invested into that. Mm-hmm. So it's not a question of whether you belong to that culture or not. To me, it's a question of whether you actually feel that, that culture as part of your identity or not, right? So for instance, in the case of Judeo Spanish or Ladino, right? There's a certain personal identification because Judeo Spanish being a diasporic language mm-hmm. and me having been living abroad for the last decade or so, I do feel a certain family resemblance with the stories of those people, right? Of the speakers of Ladino. However, there are other senses in which one, one could possibly argue that I'm actually appropriating their culture, for instance. They have a lot of religious expressions, right? Mm. Because it's, it's the language of Sephardic Jews. And I'm not a Jew. And I do not intend to become one. I don't have a personal investment in the Jewish religion. Right. So if I'm using, uh, grad, um, if I'm using religious expressions that belong to Ladino in a gratuitous fashion, and yes, that's at that point it's cultural appropriation. I see. I would say. Yeah. Otherwise, in the rest of my interaction with that language, I wouldn't say so. Even though I'm not a quote-unquote native Ladino speaker. Speaker. Mm-hmm. I want to jump into Ladino, especially since you mentioned it. And the first thing I want to ask you is, when is it appropriate to call it Ladino, and when to call it Judeo-Spanish? Mm-hmm. Or is there is there a difference? <laughs> this is the million dollar question in, in <laughs> Ladino or Judeo Spanish. And it depends on what angle you take. So if you take the prescriptivist linguist angle, then you would say, okay, uh, originally Ladino was a calc from the Hebrew Bible into Latin, word by word, and it was written for liturgical purposes, but it was not spoken. So you cannot possibly say strictly speaking, that you speak Ladino. Mm. However, over the years, people came to utilize Ladino and Judeo-Spanish, the vernacular form, oral form, as interchangeably, right? As meaning the same thing. So that's what it has become from a non-prescriptivist perspective, right? Because that's how people use it. And and the way people use a language is what defines uh, what what the meanings of the words are. Right. So from my perspective, yes, 
you're very welcome to use Latino and Judo Spanish interchangeably. And I do support that that argument again because from because I adopt a more non-prescriptivist perspective on okay. Latino. But someone who is a prescriptivist linguist would say no. Um, you really you really need to learn more about the history of Latino and you know back in the day, <laughs> which to to me doesn't carry over today, right? Just because yeah. back in the day, nice or idiot had meanings certain meaning doesn't mean we should be utilizing them in the same way right. today and we yeah. don't as a matter of fact right yeah yeah right so tell me about your journey to ladino how did you how did you come to uh make this like your your great fashion language right right right, right. <laughs> you see my eyes are shining and, and it's, do, it, you it, lit it's, up. A <laughs> it's a beautiful story yes uh i first came across ladino Relatively late, in 2014. Okay. 2014, I was I was in Israel in Yad Vashem, which is a world uh, uh, remembrance institution for the Holocaust, and there was we were invited to a concert in Ladino. I thought it was in Spanish, to be honest. So mm -hmm. I was listening to the lyrics, and then I detected it once, and I said, "Okay, I think that this is a mistake in Spanish." But then the singer kept making the same mistake. Hmm. To the point where, again, when you make a mistake many times, you just stop being a mistake, right? It turns right. into something else. And then I said, I asked someone, oh, where did the singer learn uh, Spanish? And this person told me, oh, no, it's not singing Spanish. It's singing in Ladino. So what's Ladino? Oh, it's the language spoken by the Jews who were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula at the end of the 15th century. I said, oh, interesting. So when I came back to Spain, I had a meeting with my um, philosophy teacher back in high school, and he's an expert in the Holocaust and all of this. And I asked him, oh, I went to Israel and I heard about Ladino. What is Ladino? And he told me, well, it's a mixture of, you know, basically Castilian and the long words from the, from the countries where these people settled whether it's Serbian or Italian or Turkish. So you like learning languages. So definitely you should learn Latino because the learning curve is not going to be uh, very much for you since it's similar to Spanish. Mm -hmm. and, and if you like Jewish culture and so on, you should give it a go. So I went to New York for my PhD and the first thing that I did was contacting local Sephardim. And that's how I entered into contact with them. And we were speaking in Latino all the time. And that's how I learned it. That's really interesting. So it's only been, what, six years? Six years. It looks like an eternity to me. Looking back, <laughs> it's, it's only been six years. Yeah. And how was the learning curve when you started to learn it? What was it like for you? So it, it was unlike learning any other language because I learned this language mostly through an email list called Ladino Comunita, where the only rule is for people to express themselves exclusively in Ladino. Okay. So you have moderators, so if you make mistakes and so on, they will edit them and then publish their email more or less within, with more idiomatic expressions and correct usages. And that provides you a very broad corpus because you can search in your email a certain word and see how many people have used that word before in what context, with what meaning. So that definitely helped me a lot uh, to learn the language. Yeah. And obviously the local with, the contact with local people, right? in-person meetings. Um, there was, there's a speaker called Benny Aguado. He taught me how to write uh, Latino or Judeo-Spanish, not just in Latin characters, which is a recent development, but in Meruba, in Rashi, in Solitaire, in different historical alphabets. Tell me about some of the similarities and some of the differences um, between Ladino and Spanish. Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, uh, the thing is, Ladino is developed in diaspora. Right, so prior to the expulsion, there's no Judeo-Spanish. Uh, the Jews from the Iberian Peninsula spoke Castilian or spoke Portuguese or Galician or Catalan, but they did not speak uh, something called Ladino. Okay. So Ladino comes as a koine in the diaspora with a strong uh, base of Castilian, and then long words from the countries where these people settled or the lands, right? And these countries were mostly those that belonged to the Ottoman Empire. Okay. So you have a lot of Greek words, a lot of Turkish words, some Italian words. And the thing is that between the 16th and the 19th century, 
Spanish and Euro-Spanish are developed almost in isolation from each other. Yes, there are certain negligible contexts, but mostly in isolation. And what this means is that Spanish has different dialects in, within, and Judeo-Spanish has different dialects within, a dialect from Belgrade or from Vien or from uh, um, Safed, different, different cities. So even within Spanish, you have a lot of variation and certainly much more than within Spanish because it's a less regimented language, so it's less standardized. So in practice, whereas it is true that Judeo-Spanish is a Hispanic language because its origin is from the Iberian Peninsula, has a lot of Castilian influence, it is not true that it's a variety of the Spanish. Okay. Right. Because, right. because it developed in isolation from Spanish. Right. Mm -hmm. If Judeo-Spanish developed in the diaspora mm -hmm. and it developed outside of the Iberian Peninsula, uh, separately from the way that Spanish developed mm -hmm. and had all these different dialects, uh, Judeo-Spanish is pulling from the different languages that were spoken in the Ottoman Empire. So of those people who speak it in the diaspora, um, how related are these different dialects within Judeo-Spanish? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I, I guess I mean that just asking, I'm, I'm really just asking because I have no idea, but I would imagine if you're taking some words from Greek and maybe some words from Serbian, uh or turkish and those those three are pretty different but they do have that common thread of the judeo spanish um how different are the dialects if they're being pulled from all these different these right. different um, yeah it's, it's it's basically what you said these are these are mutually understandable so long as you remove those words that are most idiosyncratic. So, so long as you don't say hararet, which is desire in Turkish, or you don't say aide, which is let's go in, in Serbian, mm -hmm. or pirom, which is fork in Greek, then if you remove those from the equation, people will understand each other. Okay. Still, they will finish most of the words with a different vowel, for instance, mm -hmm. in, uh, in e or in, in i or in u, depending on, on, on the region. But even you take any dialect from Judeo Spanish and you bring a Sephardic Jew face to face with a Spanish person today, they will be able to understand uh, each other to a, to a large extent. Yes. Another question, how, how is the language, um, and you said about the endings and the endings change. So mm -hmm. with, and I, I'm not familiar with Greek, I'm not familiar with uh, Serbian, Croatian, but um, in terms of uh, gender or declining or cases, how does, how does Judeo-Spanish break down um, in that way, again, when you, when you have, uh, you know, the way it developed in the, in the diaspora? How, how does that come into play? Or does it come into play? Yeah, that, that's, that's a very important question for two things. But the first reason is that it doesn't have cases, okay? Judeo-Spanish doesn't have cases, right? <laughs> but, but it has different endings. So the endings do not depend on, on grammatical cases. The endings depend on pronunciation. So you can say uh, nephew, right? Sobrino. Or you can say sobrinu, right? So you will change the vowel, but, but that, change, that vowel change doesn't have a grammatical function. It is a reflection of the different pronunciation according to the geographical region where it is spoken. But, but at the same time, Judeo-Spanish is very different from the Spanish in terms of gender expression. Okay. So, because it has a much more uh, purist and conservative, from a language perspective, uh, community of speakers, recent developments that we see in Spanish, such as the use of uh, the at, to say o or or a, right? To say o or a, to say uh, yeah, to say invitado or invitada. Instead of saying invitado or invitada, you use the at and you say invit at, huh. which stands for both. Or you can say invitade and use the e, and that e stands for both. Chiques, let's go to the market. And chiques is neither chicos nor chicas, but it stands for both. Uh, and you don't have th those developments in Judeo-Spanish 
yet. Hmm. Because me as part of its community of speakers and other people that work with me in Julio Spanish are bringing this into the community and experiencing very visceral reactions, both in favor and against this kind of innovation in the language. What kind of reactions are you hearing and seeing? Right, so, so from the most purest uh, end of the spectrum, the reaction is, well, you know, you're, you're vandalizing the language or you're perverting the language or you're bastardizing the language and you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, plus you're not even a Jewish person, etc. Et oh dear. Right? Um, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who say, well, you know, this is a language of immigrants, just like any other language. Yeah. And if you weren't for the inclusion, for instance, that the Ottoman Empire showed to Sephardic Jews, their descendants wouldn't be here today. Mm -hmm. So it, it's what has uh, made Ladino and Judeo-Spanish possible up today. This inclusion and this change, and you know, change is it's a concomitant to language. So, of course. So by, by, uh, there was never a time where language was spoken purely and any other generation has um, bastardized that. You know, that's, that's just a, a myth, basically. Yeah. yeah. So there are some people who understand that and support that part, yeah. So where can somebody hear Ladino spoken? Either in the wild or as part of a society or, or a classroom? In, in the most unexpected and remote places. Because, uh, <laughs> like you heard it at a concert, so I guess. Right, right, right. Um, because its communities has been, have been scattered across the globe. And, you know, the tragedy of the Holocaust also decimated a lot of its population, but it made the remaining population move even more. A lot, of, uh, a lot of people immigrated from Turkey or from Greece into the U.S. or, in is or to Israel, right? Um, the Spanish state and the Portuguese state have offered the possibility for descendants of Euro-Spanish people to reclaim Spanish and Portuguese citizenship, respectively. So that has made for even more movement. Um, so everywhere, but, but, but definitely not in the wild. Not in the wild. It will be in cities, in small towns, but it's not an, an indigenous uh, language in that, in that sense, mm -hmm. in the sense of being close to nature and so on. It, it's mostly spoken in, in, in Israel and Turkey nowadays. Okay. Turkey being Istanbul, maybe Izmir, and then in, in Jerusalem, for instance, is a very Sephardic city. Uh, so yeah, Israel, Turkey, and then the U.S. Not so much because of the amount of speakers in the U.S., but because of the amount of funding that there's behind that, which allows them to do a lot of initiatives and uh, a lot of promotion out of a small, or of an otherwise a small community of speakers, right? There, there are a lot of Sephardic Jews, but out of those Sephardic Jews, only a minority speak Latino, let alone fluently, right? So that's also like a common mis misconception that just because you're a Sephardic Jew, you speak Latino. When I went to Shanghai, I came across this Sephardic center and I thought, great, I'm going to do an interview in Ladino in Shanghai. How amazing is this? <laughs> and I contacted these people and I realized that they're only Sephardic because of liturgical reasons, but they do oh. not speak Ladino at all. So. In these communities in Turkey and in Jerusalem, people who are using the language, is it a language that people use amongst themselves only? Um, would it be a type of, would it be a language that someone would speak to an outsider of their group, like someone who they're unsure if they speak it? Is it more like a familiar language that's spoken amongst, like in your home, with your family? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. O o over the last few centuries, Ladino lost its place in the public market mm -hmm. and was only spoken at home. And what we're losing today is not so much it's not so much people who are able to speak Ladino, like me, right? Or or Judeo Spanish, but people whose first language is Ladino, who spoke them from their grandmother or grandfather, etc. Right? That's what we're losing, the intergenerational transmission of Ladino within the family space. Right. Mm. So that's why Ladino, while not a dead language, is a dying language in that sense in that people who has Ladino 
people who have Latino as their first language are in their last generation, they're dying. Is there any idea of how many Latino speakers there are? So I think the, the estimates that I've come across are very generous. I've even come across of estimates of 300,000. I don't think that's true for a second. Based on my experience, I will say there are 50,000 speakers and that's already been very generous. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's not, that's not a lot at all. That's, no. wow. Um, and you're, you're including people who, not just native first language speakers, uh, you're including anybody like who has everybody. The, okay, intermediate level of, of Latin. Okay. Yeah. Is there any unifying cultural aspect of Ladino? Is it maybe, uh, is it religion? Is it, is it food? Is it poetry? Is it dance? Is it? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's an overlap of some of these uh, features, but definitely there are Sephardic Jews who are not religious. Right, do not consider themselves religious, do not go to synagogues, do not attend the Keila by the synagogue. Mm -hmm. There are Sephardim who do not eat traditional Sephardic food, and most of them do, right? So, Borekas, for instance, a very, um, very idiosyncratic uh, dessert from the Ottoman region, or um, there are people who do not know certain songs from the Sephardic tradition, but Probably music and language are, are uh, music, language, and food are the most transversal aspects. Just not to say that everybody shares the, the, the same songs and food uh, and etc. But yeah, to some extent, yes, I would say that it's it's impossible for a Sephardic you or someone who speaks Latino to have never heard about borecas, right? These desserts that I just said. It's another no. thing whether they eat them or not. But what are they? Borecas, borequitas. It's a, it's a, it's a pastry. It's a pastry. It's very caloric, actually. I don't think I don't think it's that good. I I, I tried. <laughs> I tried it in Brazil when I went to a, to a Sephardic uh, family's place, and they they offered me lots of them. They were they were very enthusiastic that they could finally share them with someone who actually understands what the cultural and historical meaning of that is. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll have one or two because I, I want to be respectful and so on. But I wasn't. What's it taste like? I'm terrible in uh, uh, gastronomy, so I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't be able to describe it. Um, but I'm, but I'm sure in some, in some fashion or other, people have tried similar things in in the U.S. and in other countries. Okay. Just that the name itself is so Sephardic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I I guess I was wondering about that because, as you mentioned, um, you know, not everybody is religious. Not everybody follows the religious religious tradition um, and the language is scattered so um, you know when I think about languages you know as we think of languages in 2020 I guess um, I, I always think of what's the unifying thing that people would recognize what's the unifying piece of cultural and I would and then as you're talking I'm wondering is there one and um, I'm glad that there's something that you know even if <laughs> Even if you don't enjoy it, I'm glad that <laughs> there's something that's, you know, recognizable. Like, yeah, um, yeah. De de definitely, in terms of being recognizable, definitely. The food is a unifying thread, the language is a unifying thread, but is it shared by all the members of the community? I don't think there's just one. There's a single aspect that is shared by, by all the members of the community. Oh, yeah. And and I don't I don't think that there is one for any language uh i think you know everybody's different but um you know a lot of times we talk about um certain countries have like the national dish or the national cocktail i want to ask you just generally about languages um you've studied different languages and you've studied them from a linguistic standpoint as well um and you've studied linguistics as well um what methods do you think have worked for you um, with learning languages? Um, has immersion been the most helpful for you? Has it been the classroom setting? Um, and especially as you're learning Ladino, um, at a, you know, you're, you're older at this point when you're learning Ladino, you're not like a, yeah. you know, in high school anymore. So how, how was it, um, what, it, what 
methods worked best for you when you yeah. were taking that journey? Yeah, I think I think that there there is a clear transition from a more formal setting in my in the beginning, right? Uh, so school, high school, even university, for instance, I learned German. I took I took five years of, of German uh, in college. Mm -hmm. And that definitely gives you a strong, strong foundation that I don't have in other languages, like Italian, for instance, right? Okay. Because I picked it up on my own. So, so you definitely feel the contrast. But at the same time, as you progress and you learn more and more languages, you become more and more autonomous, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a famous linguist, uh, Lydia, who is special, from Hungary, who specializes on how to teach people how to self-teach languages. Right, I think I think because she she understands that point and she experienced the same the same thing that I'm saying that the more languages you speak, the more autonomous you become, and so you and, and so you realize the things that work for you that don't work for you and come up with your own method. Let's say right. Yeah. So so I have for instance a method that I use. Many people ask me, so how do you juggle so many languages, right? And a method that I use is called uh, latency and activation. Mm -hmm. So it means that you keep most of the languages that you speak at a latency level, at a dormant level. You, you practice them every now and then, maybe one hour per week, two hours per week, three hours maximum. Mm -hmm. Do not focus actively on them. Whereas you focus just on one or two at a time that you are actively invested in. Like yeah. Because right now it's Mandarin changes, right? I'm taking classes on italki or I'm practicing every day. So that's, that counts as one of my active languages but I don't think people can be active in more than say three or four languages. Right. So that's, that's a method uh, that I recommend. And so, and that has different stages, right? So if, if there's a conference, for instance, coming up in, and I'm going to be able, be able to speak in Portuguese in that conference, then I want to, one month time before the conference, I want to add up hours in my Portuguese practice until until the week before the conference, maybe I studied uh, 15 hours Portuguese conversation. Hmm. So it's latency and, and activation in that sense. That's a good idea. I think a lot of people, from what I notice, it's, you know, when you start studying a language and you want to you want to try another one, you want to try another one, but you really need to have a game plan of uh, what, what to do. And I think, I know for me, it can be overwhelming. I can never decide between okay, do I, do I get better at Italian? Do I get better at French? Do I try to learn Portuguese finally? And then it's, it's just, uh, it gets all jumbled up in my head and I never know which way to go and yeah, where and, to start. And then I think that there, there are also different aspirations and, and personalities, right? So, so it seems to me that sometimes it is looked down on to learn uh, to be able to dab in various languages without being an expert in any of them, right? Jack of all trades sort of thing. Yeah. But if that's what you want, if you just want a basic understanding of uh, 32 languages, then that's what you should do, you know? I, 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 don't, I don't hold it against anybody. I myself have done it with certain languages. So I think that that's interesting too. And, you know, our expectations of the language level that people should have in their preferred languages are, are just our expectations. You know? Yeah, their lives is are their lives, but but yeah, yeah, definitely. If you do want to reach B two level or more in specific languages, you do have to have a, a game plan. Yes. Um. So you've had so much exposure to many different languages, and I want to ask you, um, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about some of the languages that you have familiarity with? Um, and I mean social misconceptions. So I guess, and I'll tell you my example with this, that I recently realized after many years of being uninformed that uh, Dutch is, or Frisian is closer to, to English than German. And I think I always grew up um, hearing, you know, English is a Germanic language. It's just like German, it's like German. And I started studying German earlier this year and it was nothing like English at all. So right. are there any, um, are there any misconceptions that you're aware of, of, of languages like that in that sense? Let me see. Well, the first one, the most obvious one is obviously Euro-Spanish or Latino, 
which is often described as badly spoken or poorly written Spanish, mm. right? So the misconception is that it's a form of Spanish. So you take the standard of Spanish and judge everything else according to it and say, okay, this falls short of my standard, falls short of my standard, which means that, you know, it's inferior. Right. Uh, I mean, if, if Ladino had an army behind, we will hear the opposite. We will hear, you know, uh, Spanish is a poorly form of Ladino. Right. <laughs> the, the poorly written form of Ladino and poorly spoken form of Ladino. So, so yeah. So I would say that's, so that's the first one. German, yes. German, for instance, right? The, the way it sounds, how sophisticated it is, how, how refined its speakers are. I think it's completely misunderstood. Mm. To me, German sounds has a very beautiful sound. <laughs> it's, it's easier to grasp that sound, by the way, than French, for instance, which yeah. Spaniards ignore. I mean, oh. for Spaniard, right? For someone who has uh, Spanish as, as the first language. The Mandarin, the Mandarin is simple because it has uh, more simple grammar than, than uh, Spanish. Mm -hmm. But the word order, for instance, is very underestimated. The difficulty of placing words in the right order in Mandarin is vastly underestimated. Um, <laughs> Portuguese, I would say, the extent to which people who speak Romance languages are going to be able to understand Portuguese, mm. vastly overestimated, vastly overestimated. I like that you said that because I, I have a little bit of a bone to pick because I have encountered a number of people, native Spanish speakers, um, who look at Portuguese and just say, oh, well, I can understand it because it's, it's, it's kind of like Spanish or it's, it's so similar right. to Spanish. And I'm like, it's really not at all. Like it not at all, not at all. I mean, the, this is the Socratic uh, principle, right? The more you know, the less you realize you know. <laughs> and and, and it, is, it is really only people who don't know much about these languages that think that they are the same. Mm -hmm. Once you get into that, you realize how many differences and how different it is, how dif uh, difficult it is to cover those differences and to learn them and to keep them separated in different lanes, right? In your, mm -hmm. your mind. Yeah. yeah. How was your experience learning Portuguese? It was really good. It was really good because I learned it in a very organic fashion. Mm. So uh, when I went to the U.S. for the first time as a Fulbright uh, scholarship, as a Fulbright scholar, um, I was teaching Spanish at Missouri Western State University. And there, were, there was a group of like 40 Brazilians or so that had this scholarship called Census and Fronteras, right? Science mm. Without Borders. Uh, from from Brazil that allowed them to spend a semester or even an academic year in the US. So they were there on campus. I sat with them at the lunch table and then we struck a conversation and we started speaking in, in Portuguese and they will speak amongst themselves obviously in Portuguese all the time. So I, I would just pick it up and gradually and and naturally in that sense. If you if you see my video speaking in, in 10 languages in the, the Hyperpolygon Activist YouTube channel, you realize there's only one language uh, with which I, I seem comfortable and I seem relaxed and I seem uh, happy and so on, which is Portuguese. And in the rest of them, I'm trying to speak them to the best of my knowledge and ability. And so that makes for a, li a little bit of stiffness, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas yeah. in Portuguese, I'm like, same kind of, same problem. That's how I learned it. So, yeah. Really you, you had a very uh, fun, immersive experience, I think, with, yeah. with learning Portuguese. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. That's cool. What are some things that you would say surprised you when you began learning any of your languages? Is there, is there one thing that maybe surprised you the most that you weren't expecting when you started learning? Ladino or Portuguese or Mandarin? Yes, I think, I think uh, one of the things that surprises me the most is how seemingly superficial things that we say in our everyday conversations do have a very, very strong uh, meaning and uh, a very profound genealogy in the culture of that language. So it's, so, so it's crazy that, that, that uh, I can't think of any example off the top of my head, but, uh, but I have gone back to expressions which I had thought I had already assimilated and understood, 
and then realize how many layers of meaning there were in such seemingly superficial and uh, uncomplicated expressions once I have learned the cultural background mm. as a result of learning that language, right? And, and that has been the most shocking. Uh, it's the fascination with the everyday use of language. I haven't become more fascinated by the more complicated or refined aspects, but the other way around. But what looks simple, but it's not at all, for instance, with, with reggaeton, right? Mm-hmm. Say, okay, reggaeton is superficial. It's just, you know, an educated people singing, blah, blah, blah. But then if you examine the lyrics, you come across certain expressions and certain references and allusions that have very, very profound implications. Hmm. And, but you have to know all the subtext, right? You have to be familiar with the literature from a certain country or the political heroes from that time. Or, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that. But I think, to your point, I think music has a way of really filling us in of the nuances of certain languages. And um, a lot of people like to learn languages uh, with music or with songs. I think I think it's really hard, though, especially when you don't know. And, and I've listened to songs in other languages and you know I'm singing along and it's great. And then even if I listen to, for example, British artists, mm-hmm. sometimes they'll, they're singing in English and they're making references to things that happened in the UK. And right, I, right, yes. You know, I have no idea about it. So it's right. these, are, these are the sort of things, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like um, Tiny Tempa or artists that you wouldn't think of as philosophers precisely. Yeah. And nevertheless, throw some references that are very profound. Right. But you only can access them if you begin by removing the prejudice that these people have nothing profound to say. Yeah. Right? If you're not yeah. open to that, you can't see. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and w- when it comes to music, I think it, it works for me only for those languages that have a similar pronunciation to the languages that I mastered the best. Mm-hmm. So coming from, from Spanish, for instance, music in Serbian works well for me, Portuguese okay. or uh, Italian. So either they have a similar pronunciation or you already know that language very well. So in the case of Portuguese, it's not a similar pronunciation, but I'm already familiar with the vocabulary. So. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, songs in Chinese, for instance, no, not <laughs> They won't help you, no. Not yet. When you get when you get better, you'll uh, you'll be able to. So I want to ask you, and I just realized as I'm looking at my question here, uh, Ladino, and I'm just going to say 21. But is it 21? Good question. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's an excellent question. I myself have have been have been having these debates with my colleagues from Ladino 21 and say, should we pronounce it Ladino 21 or Ladino 21? Should be Ladino 21, right? Okay. Because it's closer to Ladino. Okay. How, how we say it in Ladino. But uh, it is true that our audience understands English mostly. And we, we try to make Ladino amenable to non Ladino speaking uh, groups mm-hmm. and audiences. So, in that sense, sometimes we use Ladino 21 too. So, you can say, Whichever, whichever you prefer, yeah. We use both. I have this thing where numbers always trip me up. So if I'm traveling or something and I'm, I'm reading, uh, you know, I have to get on the train and get off at station number seven or I have to be on track number seven. I cannot, I always say the number in English and it takes yeah. me a second step to say, wait a minute, the number should be in the language that I'm speaking. Yeah, so, so as, yeah. That happens. Uh, just this week, this week, I was teaching uh, uh, Spanish, and there was a sentence about COVID nineteen, right? So my students were with the entire sentence in Spanish, and then when they get to nineteen, instead of saying diecinueve, they would say nineteen. Nineteen, yeah. <laughs> every time, yeah, every time. And I have heard stories that numbers are particularly it's particularly difficult to detach your first language from the numbers that you learn huh. uh, in other languages. So. I, I even heard, but this is probably a, a this is probably a forged story, counterfeit, probably. But what I heard is that in World War II, when um, when a certain army wanted to identify the enemy, and they would speak their language really well, 
what they try is to make them do uh, mathematical operations and make them count in their language. And that's when they will realize how much slower they were. And then oh. find out that they were not uh, native speakers of a given language. Yeah. Well, even if that's not true, that's certainly a good story. Yeah, and I, and I, and I, I, I do believe that it's much more difficult uh, in my experience, right? To count or multiply uh, thinking numbers in different lengths. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it is. I'm, I'm glad that there's some kind of scientific backup of that because I was starting to feel like, ah, why can't I do it? Why can't I do it? Um, so that was a detour, but tell me about uh, Ladino21 and tell me about your Language Freedom YouTube channel. Sure. So Ladino 21 started in 2017. Remember how I was in New York in 2015. I arrived there in 2015 for my PhD studies. And then I contacted local people who spoke that language, right? One of these individuals was Benny Aguado, who's a Sephardic Jew, born and raised in New York, but his family is from uh, Turkey and, and Greece. And he was very eager to have his story, personal story and language documented in any way, right? In any possible way. So I started doing that. And I created this YouTube channel to showcase his way of speaking Latino and his stories and his cuentos de Chaha and everything like this. And then from them, it just grew larger. From them, from there, we just explore in more directions, more countries, more people, more stories. But initially the project was just to document his is Ladino skills, yeah. And so after that initial phase, then we went to social media, Facebook, YouTube, whatnot, Ladino Comunita, obviously, we also disseminate uh, Ladino 21 there. And um, then we, we bought new equipment, new camera, new microphone, we traveled the world, we went to Brazil, to the US, to England, to Turkey, Israel, with with uh, recording Ladino everywhere, basically Shanghai, I tried but I couldn't, but I did try. So so yeah, everywhere basically. And we went to academic conferences. Uh, we got some grants to disseminate that research. And yeah, but it all started with just recording the words of uh, old person in New York. Yeah, that's cool. And for people who want to catch up with your projects. Um, how can they find Ladino21 and tell sure. us your, your YouTube channel? Sure. So it suffices to, to just type Ladino2 uh, on 1 in, in Arabic numbers mm -hmm. um, on YouTube. You can find our YouTube channel there. That's our main focus, right? The bulk of our project is a digital archive, basically. And then Facebook is our main means of dissemination. So even though YouTube is our main uh, digital archive nucleus. Facebook is where we have more followers, actually, much more, many more than in, than in um, on YouTube. Okay. Then we are also on Twitter again, Ladino Twenty One, and we are launching a website this month, Ladino Twenty One dot org, because we are turning into a community-based company. And um, yeah, that's as regards Ladino Twenty One. Exciting. So I will take. Um, I will take all those links and I will add them to the show notes so sure. that people can, uh, they can just click and they'll be taken right to you. What does the 21 signify? 21 because we're documenting how Ladino is spoken in the 21st century. To, otherwise it will be Ladino 13 or 14, right? <laughs> but we only include material that is uh, recorded in the 21st century. Yeah. Cool. Okay. To try To try and... and counter the narrative that, that Ladino is an archaic version of Spanish. Yeah. And that is a language that is, is, uh, it's been exoticized as something that should be placed in a museum and revered there, but it's not a living language, a language that is still alive in the 21st century, mm -hmm. something that is cool nowadays. Yeah. And we want to reverse that narrative to, to showcase that, that, that is, that is um, out and about. Right. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And next year, when it's 2021, You'll, you know, right, right. I, I, I 21, 21. Yeah, yeah, I haven't thought about that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Should include some form of, of branding there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you can, uh, it'll, it'll make for some interesting branding, I think. Um, right. 
So what are some things about Ladino that you would want, or maybe one thing, if there was one thing that you'd want people to know about Ladino that they may not be aware of, or they may not, uh, they may not realize, uh, what, what would that be? I would say two things. That is not dead, and that is not a variety of Spanish. Okay. I'm happy with these two. Someone <laughs> understands that much, my mission has been accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, people will have to check out your uh, all your channels and sure, they'll they'll see that is not that. Yeah. Get it? Yeah. They'll and they'll they'll get a chance to hear it as well. Right. So yeah, that's I think that's important. How's your how's your Chinese going? How's your Mandarin going? My Mandarin is, it's a love-hate story. Uh, <laughs> I'm investing a lot of time and effort and making progress, but the progress is slow. Mm. So my next goal right now is to take the HSK3 okay. uh, exam. And uh, I was aiming for October, it might be November, December at the latest, but I do want to, to pass it this year. And so that will put me at a pre-intermediate level certified pre-intermediate level <laughs> uh, the upper intermediate level being hsk4 so it's not there's not really an exam for intermediate level in chinese you either take the pre-intermediate or you take the the upper intermediate so it's a love hate what are you loving and what are you hating about the process so far i love the metaphorical nature of of uh, chinese i love the metaphors that i'm seeing i saw the other day that mind was great ocean, right? Uh, this kind of things. I love mm. that. I love the different conceptualization of uh, objects and people, for instance, right? So when you write a letter from China, you don't write uh, Carlos and then your street and then your town and then your country. You write the reverse order, right? First your community, uh, United States, then you write the town, then you write the street, and the very last item is your name. Interesting. Right, so so yeah, shifting conceptualizations of the world, that's what mm -hmm. I enjoy the most. Yeah. And what I hate, I don't really hate it, I know it's part of the process, but uh, what I dislike the most is um, how similar some characters are to each other. Uh -huh. It's very simple to get fooled and to think, oh, I know what this character is, you pronounce it, and then it's not that bad. You pronounce it, but it's not the right tone, and so it's very, very, very difficult to to get the right pronunciation for the right characters. Is this your first experience with a tonal language? Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, not with an um, with a language that uses an alphabet other than the Latin script. Of course. Uh, right, but yeah, yeah, first with tonal. Do you have any? Well, maybe from what you've experienced so far, do you have any uh, advice for someone who is experiencing learning a tonal language for the first time? Is there anything that you've noticed that helps, uh, that helps you to, to understand which tones are correct? Yeah, I think that the aspect that is most helpful to me is to have a one-on-one -on -one, uh, teacher. Okay that specializes in, in Chinese. So it's not just someone whose first language is Chinese, but actually someone who is trained in teaching people how to learn Chinese. And to just break it down with, with him or with her. Um, and that's, that's the most useful way. Because otherwise you may have um, people whose first language is Chinese who are really not able to talk to you in Chinese, but until it's too fast, basically. Mm. You need to break it down. You need to be more patient with the rhythm until you can get to fluent conversation. But yeah, if you try to go too fast too early, then probably it will discourage you from staying on track. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so even though you're in the the you're in the thick of your Chinese your Mandarin uh, language journey, what's next? Cool. Uh, <laughs> I've said to myself that for the for the following five years I will not try to learn any other language, but that is not happening. That is never happening. I always say that to myself, never happen. The last time the last time I cheated it was in the in the language event in Edinburgh where I bought an Irish Gaelic grammar book. Oh cool. So yeah. Um 
it's I can't help it. I can't help it. It can be Greek, it can be Irish, it's a two that are very interesting thing. But if I were to go with a more pragmatic option, I would go with Arabic. I already I already have a good grasp on how to read in Arabic. Mm-hmm. But what I haven't mastered is any I haven't focused on any dialect really, because I focus on Arabic for research purposes. So I was doing my PhD thesis about jihadism, jihad, okay. and so on. So Probably Arabic, Darija, it's my favorite dialect in Morocco. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will be my, my dream language. Cool. Yeah. And, and Arabic has similarities with Spanish as well. Definitely, definitely. yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, some of them I'm foreseeing because everybody says, you know, if the word says by, starts um, with A-L, it's probably from Arabic, right? Like almohada, as in pillow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are words that do not have that pattern that are also Arabic. So uh, Darsena, for instance, which is the platform for the bus, it's a very unique word that is hard to find. It's hard. It contains the, the Arabic word Dar, which means home or, okay. or house, right? And it's very unique. You won't find it in any other, any other Romance language. What's the word again? Darsena. 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 Uh-huh. As in D-A-R-S-E-N-A. Darsena. Darsena. Huh. Yeah. I think Arabic is such a beautiful language. Um, and I love that actually, you know, that it is, it does have relationship to uh to Spanish, to Portuguese and in certain words and it's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it's so useful to you can communicate so many so many many people, at least in the written form of people, in modern standard Arabic. Okay. I just wanted to, to say a little bit about the hyperpolygon activist. Yes, please do. And it's about reconciling two aspects that I've rarely seen together. So I know a lot I know a lot of polyglots and hyperpolygons and people whose language skills are off the charts. And I know a lot of linguists who have a lot of knowledge about linguistic ideologies, critical linguistics, non-prescriptivism, etc. But I have, I have hardly seen people who have both. Mm. And this is what I think we need to make a difference in the world, right? Not just to be able to dance in one way, dance in another way, speak in one language and the other, but yeah. to actually have a critical perspective on the political, the cultural implications of what it means to speak a language, what it means to describe someone as native speaker, mm-hmm. what it means to establish a, a clear cut distinction between language and dialect, what are named languages, for instance, right? Yeah. Named languages destroys the idea of language as a separate uh, object, but it, it says that it's a discursive, uh, discursive uh, object, right? It's something that only exists as a it's a socio-political product, but it doesn't have a separate ontological entity. Mm-hmm. That's why all, all languages are named, basically, right? Yeah. It's not something objective, even though nationalists try very hard to describe it as something objective. Uh, this, this sort of questions, right? How can, we, how can we help provide interpreters for people who use minoritized languages uh, or refugees that are in danger? These sort of questions. How can we make a difference with languages? How can we pay it forward? Right, because otherwise we risk we risk what we call in Spanish aburguesamiento, right? Hmm. So to to try to turn languages into commodities and to rest in our laurels of saying, okay, you know, I learned all these languages and look, you know, these are my medals and that's it. Yeah. No, but my point is trying to constellate a broader cultural logic beginning with the languages that you know, as many as possible, to the best of your knowledge and ability, but trying not to lose sight of the broader picture and um, what languages are and why do they exist in the first place, basically, right? Because I think sometimes we tend to separate too much languages from their community of speakers. Mm. When we're fighting for the preservation of a language like Ladino, we're really fighting for the lives of their speakers and the way of life and their communities, right? That's why it's important language itself it's beautiful it's interesting but it's not a life or death issue mm-hmm. yeah. so where can we find your channel oh yeah uh, <laughs> just type the hyperpolyglot activist on youtube you'll find it on facebook uh 
there's also a website, the hyperpolyglotlinguist.com, where you can uh, find uh, languages, uh, so language learning classes, methodologies, courses, products, and also the institutions with which we collaborate. We donate a certain percentage to these institutions. Um, uh, so this is these are organizations that work with uh, refugees or that work with trying to make positive changes in the world for languages. So the last question that I like to ask mm -hmm. in every episode, um, do you have any, and you have, you have a big list to choose from because you're so familiar with so many languages, but do you have any jokes, swear words, tongue twisters, cool slang words, idioms, mm -hmm. words of wisdom or advice in any of your languages that you'd like to share? Okay, I will go. I will go with a uh, idiomatic expression in Ladino. Okay, perfect. Which is a gente de pirón. So a, a pirón is a fork in Greek, and because when the first Ladino speakers arrived in Greece, fork was a utensil that was only used by the upper class. Mm. People of the fork came to be synonymous with VIP. So that's how you say VIP in Ladino. You say people of the fork. Say it again and teach it to me. I want to try to say sure, it. Sure. Gente. Gente. So this is like gente, but it's written D-J-E-N-T-E. -E. Gente. 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 Mm -hmm. gente. De. Oh. De. Piron. 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 Uh-huh. Piron. Piron. Uh-huh. Gente de piron. Gente de piron. Okay, right. Great. So, so you can say, which people are gente de piron? people yeah. of the fork that's a great one i like that one really. i like that a lot <laughs> well carlos this has been a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for teaching me about ladino and uh judeo spanish and i'm really looking forward to what you'll do with ladino 21 and with the hyper polyglot activists in this context, mm -hmm. in the first language that comes to your mind out of all the ones we talked about, mm -hmm. what's the best way to say goodbye? Don't think too hard. Bon continuation. Oh, wait, you have to teach me that one. <laughs> it's bon continuation. Bon? One more time. Bon continuation. Bon continuation mm -hmm. so it means i hope that you continue to make good progress that everything's good with you when this conversation ends bon continuation. Bon continuation. and what language is that that's uh, french it's french it is french but you know what i heard a little portuguese so i didn't want to assume it's because i speak every language with the portuguese <laughs> it's not the first time people say it to me why do you speak german with a portuguese accent <laughs> Everywhere, it just happens all the time. I can't help it. I could have also said Caminos de Leche y Miel. Caminos de Leche y Miel. Yeah, which is what, what you wish someone when they, they go on a trip or they go on a, on a journey. Does that mean yeah. like, the, like the road of milk and honey? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. It's a very Sephardic expression. I like that. I like that. Well, thank you so much. Bon continuation. Uh -huh. I'll be talking to you soon. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>